ahead and go right on into our Bible lesson. And of course, we're looking at this thought of developing your personal Bible study. Last week, uh, we looked at the timeline of the Bible and how that each, each event tied together and ties the Bible together from start to finish. And uh, very interesting to see how all of the Bible is tied together. Uh, but now tonight, we're going to be going and looking at the importance of understanding cultural context of Scripture. So the importance of understanding the cultural context of Scripture. The theme verse that we've been using for this study is 2 Timothy 2.15, and I believe that we could probably all quote it together, but go ahead and look at your Bibles there, and let's just all read it aloud together this evening. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I don't know if everybody understood, but let's try that one more time. And everybody read aloud with me as we read that verse. Let's do that one more time. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to study your word. Thank you, Lord, for Christians who want to study your word, Christians who want to know more. Uh, Lord, they're not satisfied with a shallow Christianity, but, Lord, they want to come. They come to ever available service. Lord, they come faithfully. Uh, Lord, they apply themselves to your word. And, Father, I thank you for them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will help me. Uh, Lord, I'm unworthy of this position, unworthy, uh, Father, to be the one that teaches your word. But, Father, I thank you, uh, Lord, for the calling. I thank you, dear Lord, for giving me uh, this place to serve. And Lord, I ask that you'll bless now as we look at your word. And Lord, as we uh, dig into how we can understand your word so that when we read it, uh, Lord, we know how to apply it to our lives that, Lord, we may live thereby. Lord, I pray that you will be with the uh, ministry downstairs, be with Pastor Kent and Brother Robbie as they're teaching tonight. Lord, I pray that you'll be with them as they minister to the young people. Father, be with this service and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So looking at this thought, the importance of understanding the cultural context of Scripture. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country uh, or maybe just another state, some of these states here in the U.S. are quite different, uh, uh, but if you ever traveled to another country or another place somewhere different than what you're used to, a lot of times you will experience what we refer to as culture shock. In other words, you will get there and you will realize that life is taking place in a completely different way than the way you do life at home. And we call that cultural shock. You'll look at the way that people live, the type of homes they live in, the type of food they eat, the way that they dress, the, the type of automobiles they drive, how they drive their automobiles. I mean, all sorts of things you'll look at and you'll notice and you'll be like, wow, this is so completely different from home and it will It'll shock you at the differences and you have to stay there for a while to begin to understand their culture so that you can understand how you can relate to them and how you can interact with them. I remember there in Papua New Guinea, 
Uh, we were riding with Brother Matt through Port Moresby, and he was just laying on his horn. I mean, he'd come up the intersection just laying on his horn, and we're like, Brother Matt, you know, isn't that rude? He's like, in U.S. it is. In PNG, that's just how you drive. There's nothing rude about it. This is just, you let them know you're coming through. This is how it works. But it, it took him a while to get adjusted to that. And, of course, many different examples we could look at. I remember uh, when we were there, uh, we were laying block and filling the block with concrete, and so we were mixing uh, cement to put in the block, and we wanted a hoe to mix the cement with. You know, you put your mortar and your water and a wheelbar, and you mix that up with a hoe. That's just the way we do it. And... They didn't even know what a hoe was. They had no idea what a hoe was. They mixed theirs with a shovel. And so pa Pastor Matt and I got in the van and we went to Port Moresby. We went to store after store after store and nobody knew what a hoe was. We'd try to describe it to them. They had no idea what, what is this thing you're talking about. And finally, at, a, at a, uh, a big department store, we found a very crude imitation of a hoe that went by a different name and we purchased that and was able to use it, but they had no idea whatsoever what a hoe was. They, they didn't know, never heard of that. And so if you think about that, if I were to tell a story in Papua New Guinea about mixing cement and I didn't refer to what I was using, I just talked about mixing cement, the people in PNG would automatically picture me using a shovel. Whereas if I told the same story here in the U.S., you would picture me using a hoe because our cultures are different. Therefore, we understand things differently. And so that's just a simple illustration to kind of set the tone of what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight concerning culture in Scripture. The culture we're familiar with definitely affects both uh, how we illustrate our conversation and how those who are listening understand our illustrations or how they understand what we mean in our conversation. The same is true regarding Scripture. Now, there's no question that Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Absolutely, 100%, the Bible is clear about that. The Bible itself is testimony of the fact that this is no ordinary book. This is a divine book that was given by God. It testifies that we know that the Bible was given by inspiration of God. No question of that whatsoever. But God did use human men to pin down the words. And He allowed those men to use illustrations and examples from their culture. He allowed them to use uh, the geographical locations that they lived in uh, and so forth and so on. And so the Word of God is filled with the language, the ge geography, the culture of a place that you and I have never been. Now we know that the, the promised land, the Israel, still exists and that uh, hoping that the Lord allow me to go visit there one day in the near future and be able to look at it. But even if I am able to go and I am able to see Israel and look at it, it's nothing like it was when the Bible was written. The places may have some of the same names, uh, uh, but if you remember when we were looking at the tomb where uh, Abraham buried Sarah, uh, in the Bible where we were reading about, it was an empty field with a cave in it. Now it's in the middle of a city with an enormous building over top of it. It's completely different. So the culture was completely different. Not only was the culture completely different, but the time was completely different. Uh, so we not only have 
a different way of life, we are going back to where life was done differently. You could probably testify of this, that our children think that we're ancient uh, uh, because that we just do life differently than the way they do. Uh, Joel and I was talking the other day, and he said that all he's ever known was the 2000s. I said, that's just strange to me because that seems like that was just a couple years ago. Matter of fact, forever in my mind, it'll be year 2000, and uh, that's just that's how it is. You, the, the time stopped at that point, you know. But uh, he said that, you know, he's never known nothing but that, and to me, that was just a small part of my life. And so time makes an enormous difference. And when we look at when the Word of God was written, it was written quite a while back. And so because we're separated from the culture of the Bible, both generationally and geographically, we cannot completely dissect and understand and rightly divide the Word of God without understanding the culture that surrounds this passage of Scripture. Uh, I believe that the, that the diligent student of the Word of God must incorporate an understanding of the culture if they're to rightly divide the Word of God. In all honesty, uh, to interpret the Word of God with a Western mindset uh, renders the Bible foolishness. Renders the Bible foolishness at, at best renders the Bible heresy at worst. You say, how is that so? Well, whenever we read about them taking the roof off uh, to let the, man, the, the crippled man down in front of Jesus so Jesus could heal him, whenever we understand that the houses and how they were built over there, that they were flat-roofed, that most of them were easily accessed on the roof, this makes perfect sense. But if I'm thinking of a Cape Cod, I'm trying to figure out just exactly how did they get that guy up on the roof and down inside. There has to be some understanding of the culture in order to understand the illustration that's been made. I honestly believe that no passage of Scripture can be completely understood unless we understand the context of the passage. And many times the context requires that we also understand the culture that surrounded that passage uh, being written. Now, I, I do want to mention this before we go on into the lesson. To state this about the Word of God does not in any way mean that the Bible is limited. Because the Bible was written in a different culture does not mean that this book is limited in any way whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't mean that I need to write a new Bible that is current with my culture. I don't believe that at all. But I do think that if I'm going to be a diligent student of the Word of God, I should understand the culture that surrounded when this book was written. And so that's the nature of our study this evening, looking at the cultural context of Scripture. Whenever you think about culture, you'll find that there's four main divisions that define the culture of an area or the culture of a people group. This would apply to the Word of God. This would apply to just historians, uh, people looking, uh, uh, archaeologists digging up uh, cities and so forth. These four divisions, uh, these four steps of studying uh, ancient culture would be applied across the board. These are the steps uh, that are used by historians and archaeologists whenever they discover uh, a culture and they want to try to understand the people and the time period. These are four steps that they'll go through. So we have these there on your worksheet. The four main steps of studying ancient culture. The first step is their thoughts or we could say their beliefs. Their thoughts 
or and their beliefs. This includes their religion, uh, their government, their social interaction, the dynamic of their families, their interests, their pursuits, their lifestyle. Uh, whenever we study a people, we try to understand uh, how did they think? What was the thought process uh, in this day and time? The next thing that we would see, in addition to their thoughts, next uh, we would see their speech. Now the Bible tells us that as a man thinketh in his heart, uh, so is he. And boy, I'm telling you what, we see this illustrated whenever we look at history. Uh, we see that by finding what men said whether that be studying their writings, whether that be studying uh, inscriptions that have been left behind or, or paintings or whatever, as we study their speech, what they had to say, it reveals to us their thought process, how they thought, what they, what they thought about, what their goals and ambitions were, what they were trying to accomplish, uh, how they described themselves, how they described others, how they described the land that they lived in, uh, and so forth. Uh, whenever we listen to someone's speech, we can understand their thoughts. The Bible tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so by understanding someone's speech, we can understand their thoughts. And whenever we follow these four steps, the next thing that we would consider, we have their thoughts or their beliefs, their speech. Then we consider their actions. Their actions. First we think, then we speak, and finally we do. We think, speak, and then we put it into action. Uh, uh, there are times that here at the church I will think of something in my office, I'll come out here during a service, and I will share it to you, and then the next week or the next month, whatever it is, we will do whatever it was that was thought about, spoke about, and then finally we do it. So we have thoughts, speech, and action. Thoughts become words, words become actions. By listening to the speech, we can begin to visualize the actions of a people or an area that we've never been to. And we can confirm our assumptions. So we, we listen to their speech. We begin to, to see that their actions that resulted from their speech. And we like we're beginning to get a picture of who these people are. Then comes the last step that we use to confirm our assumptions, and that is artifacts. Artifacts. So the fourth step in understanding a culture is the artifacts that they leave behind. Now, it's important to realize that while these four things occur in the order that I've just given, thoughts, speech, actions, artifact, whenever we research a group of people or a time period, we research it in the reverse order. We start with artifacts, then we, by looking at the artifacts, we can figure out what their actions would have been if they were using this, then they must have been this. We find a plow. Oh, he must have planted a garden. We find a, a shepherd's staff. Oh, he must have raised sheep, so forth and so on. We see the artifacts. That lets us know what their actions must have been, and then we study it in the reverse order. So uh, all this is important to understand. All this is important to understand because it shows us how continued research can continue to reveal a better understanding of the Word of God or a clearer understanding of the context than we previously had. Now, in our Faith Bible Institute, we've been studying the book of Exodus. And I'll just throw out another plug here. If you're thinking about Faith Bible Institute, keep thinking about it. It's worth your time. But we've been studying the Exodus and, and the children of Israel when they left Egypt and, the, and went into the Promised Land, that time of the Exodus. Now, for centuries, for centuries, Egyptologists and historians have said that the Bible couldn't be true 
because there was no artifacts that confirmed that the, that the Israelites ever made an exodus out of Egypt. And we've been several weeks studying this, so I can't cover it all tonight, but just in brief, they say there's no proof, no proof whatsoever. Couldn't have happened. Continued research following these four steps is now revealing, and guess what? The Bible's right after all. It is true the historians and Egyptologists have been wrong all along. There is tremendous amount of proof that the children of Israel were in Egypt. They did leave Egypt. Uh, they did have a great exodus. And you say, well, I don't need to know that. I believe the Bible. And you know what? That's wonderful when you can get to that mindset that you just take the Bible at face value and you don't need anybody to prove the Bible to you. That's wonderful. That's where I'm at. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Nobody has to prove anything to me. I believe it. Even if science says it's wrong, even if the archaeologists say it's wrong, it doesn't matter. I believe what the Bible says. But not everybody's there. Not everyone is convinced. And whenever I am able to show people with physical evidence that they can see that the Word of God is true, we can plant in them a seed of faith that may grow to a point where they would put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's important for us to be able to understand these things and see that yes, yes, there, the Bible is true, but there is proof that it is true. If you'd like to uh, look at some of this about um, the Exodus, there is a film that was put out uh, called Patterns of Ex Evidence, Patterns of Evidence Exodus. Um, uh, our professor referred to it. I went and found it. It's a couple hours long. Uh, when I was first watching it, I thought, well, we'll watch this on a Wednesday night. And then I realized it was way too long to watch on a Wednesday night. Uh, but uh, it's a couple hours long, so we watched it over the period of a couple of weeks, getting a half hour here and there until we got it all in. But tremendous, tremendous film. Uh, we have a Roku. We just searched on Roku patterns of evidence, and there it was. It was free. So if you're looking for something good to watch that just proves to you that the Israelites were in Egypt and they did come out, Tremendous, tremendous thing to watch. And so I enjoy it. I know there's a lot of stuff that you can watch on the television and not everything that I watch is about the Bible. I enjoy regular shows as well. But you know what? It'd do us well to every now and again take in a little extra about the Word of God. I always enjoy getting into that. Anyway, when considering the influence of culture on literature, you can break it down into 11 areas of influence. So we have the four steps whereby we understand a culture, but whenever we look at how that culture influences a piece of literature, and in our case, the Word of God, we can break it down into 11 areas of influence. There may be more or less, uh, but this is what we have for our lesson tonight. So I've got 11 things that we'll go through here for you. Uh, first, we see there is political influence, political influence, number one there on your list. Uh, this would refer to the government, the powers, the control, dominance of one nation over another nation, slavery, conflict, so forth and so on. This would be political. The second one uh, that we would see that influences our, our word, our, our Bible is religious. Uh, you can uh, look, are they Jewish? Are they Christian? Are they pagan? Do they uh, follow mythology? Uh, who are their deities? What rituals do they do? What religious practices do they have? How much power does their religion have in their culture? So forth and so on. Uh, the third uh, thing that affects our literature is economic, economics. Uh, this would refer to currency, wages, uh, uh, 
trade with one another, their, their strengths, uh, whether they were strong economically or whether they were in poverty. Uh, uh, this would have to do with commerce, trading, uh, the, how close they were to, to uh, able to use ships, how did they move their goods, so forth and so on. This definitely has an impact. Uh, the next one, number four, would be legal. Legal influence, uh, this would have to do with taxes, imprisonment, uh, laws, penalties, citizenship, uh, uh, borders, so forth. Uh, agricultural, agricultural culture uh, affects our literature. This would have to do with uh, farming, livestock, crops, techniques, climate, weather patterns, vegetation, drought, uh, how they uh, went about it, uh, what methods they used, and so forth. Architectural, architectural culture influences our writing. This would have to do with structures, designs, building materials, uh, craftsmen, and, and these things. Boy, just a little note right here. If you ever get in reading about the building of Solomon's temple, Take a few minutes and read about some of those craftsmen. I'm telling you what, those guys could teach you some stuff. I mean, it is amazing what those guys were able to do and how they were able to pour all these uh, gold and silver and brass. And uh, Joel and I did a little research into it once. So they would go into the desert and they would dig molds in the sand and then melt that stuff and pour it in them molds. It's just phenomenal. Uh, but anyway, back to the lesson. That architectural culture influences our writing. Uh, clothing. Clothing uh, affects the writing and, and affects our understanding of the writing. Clothing styles, the materials used, the, the colors. We can think of Joseph and the coat of many colors and understanding that in that day, most folks just wore drab clothing and now here we have someone that's wearing a colorful coat. It has significance. Um, we could think of domestic influence, domestic cultural influence. This has to do with family relations, marriage, children, death, burial, inheritances, a position of authority, and so forth. Uh, geographical, geographical influence, um, mountain ranges, valleys, uh, all through the Word of God, especially through the Old Testament. We read of many significant mountains. We read of valleys, and all of these things have meaning. And understanding how the land laid and what these mountains were and so forth uh, has a great weight on this. Uh, we look at uh, highways, cities, towns, terrains, elevation. All of this would have to do with the geography of that culture. Uh, we also think of military. Military uh, would have an influence on the writing. Uh, this speaks of their weaponry. And, and uh, one thing that, this is just me, I've never found anyone else that thinks this, uh, but I don't, think, I don't know if anyone else even cares, so that's why I've never found it. But anyway, uh, David slew Goliath with a sling. And now the sling that he used wasn't one of these rubber band things. It was uh, made with uh, two strings and a pouch, and you spin that rascal around and you throw it, and um, David it killed Goliath with a sling. And up until that point, the sling was a shepherd's tool. And the shepherd would use it to throw a large object to scare a wild animal. It wasn't designed at that point to use as a, a, a weapon to kill something. It was used to scare things. But David, he perfected the sling. And David was able to kill with his sling. He went into battle and killed the giant with his sling. And after David's time, and I have did a little looking into this, <clears throat> after David's time, you find that militaries began across the world using slings and training men to use slings uh, uh, to go into battle with them. 
Before David's time, you only find the sling used by shepherds. So I really think that David is the guy that weaponized the sling and made it popular. Uh, the Bible tells us that he had in his army 700 left-handed men that could sling a stone at a higher breadth and not miss. They perfected that thing. And it's just interesting. Get in there and see how all this ties together and how God is working. And uh, myself, I've uh, made quite a few slings and uh, practiced with them. And, you know, here to the door, I might could hit your truck with it. But, you know, I'm getting there. Uh, But anyway, uh, uh, they're a lot of fun to use. But we see that military would deal with weaponry, types of weapons, tactics, manpower, skill, uh, the the method they use, the chain of command, so forth and so on. All that would be influencing the literature that you read. Uh, Social. Social would be our 11th one. Uh, This has to do with nationalities, languages, treaties, restrictions, interactions, lower class, middle class, upper class, uh, all this would fall into social. In the Old Testament we read about a a group of people who were uh, trying to pretend they were someone else and they would have them say a certain word and because of their dialect they couldn't pronounce the word correctly and they knew that they were intruders. This would fall under social and all this helps us to better understand the word of God. And so understanding, understanding these and that these affect the word of God helps us whenever we read the Word of God to say, in order for me to understand what is being talked about here, I need to understand the culture surrounding this passage. And so we're going to try to move quickly here and look at some examples of cultural influence in Scripture. And look at some ways that we can see this influence and how it uh, helps us to better understand the passage, and I'm trying uh, to take and condense these lessons because I could just get lost in them and, and we could be here for years and y'all would get bored. And so I'm trying to condense these and move through them quickly so that uh, you benefit from them but you don't get glassy-eyed on me. So sometimes y'all do that. But anyway, uh, so some examples of cultural influence in Scripture. First of all, uh, we see political. So we want to see a political influence here. And the reference that I have is found in Matthew 16, 24, uh, where Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You say, well, how does does that verse have anything to do with politics? I, I don't understand how that fits in the political slot. Well, you see, if you understand how the government worked in that day, you will understand that the cross was reserved only for the worst of criminals. That's the only people that was put on the cross, was the very worst of criminals is who was placed on the cross. This was what the government dictated. If we're going to kill somebody on a cross, they're going to be the very worst. So whenever Jesus says to you and I, as his followers, take up your cross and follow me, most of the time, whenever we hear someone speak on this verse, uh, we talk about being willing to suffer persecution, being willing to go through suffering for Christ. But really, that's a pretty mild definition. Whenever we understand the culture surrounding this verse, first we understand, of course, that the cross doesn't just represent suffering. The cross represents death. So if I'm going to take up my cross, I'm willing to die for him. But not only that, when we look at it in a political stance, to take up your cross means that I'm being rejected by everybody. I'm willing to be seen by all of society as the lowest of criminals for the cause of Christ. And when you put it in the political culture and understand how the cross was used, 
it sheds a new light on this passage of Scripture and puts a new weight to our commitment as far as serving Christ and how we ought to follow Him. The next one we see uh, is religious. Religious. How does uh, understanding religions help us uh, understand the Scripture? Well, the plagues of Egypt. The plagues of Egypt. Uh, Exodus 7 through chapter number 12. Chapter 7 through chapter number 12. Brother C. Cox was teaching on this uh, Sunday morning, doing a tremendous job uh, teaching on the plagues of Egypt. Each of the ten plagues was a direct defeat of one of the false gods that the people in Egypt worshipped. Every one of the plagues was directly linked to a false god. Thereby, we can understand that God wasn't just randomly picking things. No, God was demonstrating that I am the only true God. I am the Almighty. I can overpower all of your false gods. And it's a wonderful study to get in there and look at each of those different false gods. Uh, economic, economic. How does economics uh, influence our understanding of Scripture? Well, in Ruth chapter number 4 and verse number 5, uh, we read of Boaz. And now, you remember uh, Ruth uh, came and uh, Boaz, she uh, went to Boaz. She thought he was a near kinsman. Boaz wanted to redeem her, thereby inherit the property that she had and make her his wife. And so uh, he was a near kinsman. He was interested. However, there was a kinsman who was nearer than him, according to Old Testament law. Uh, he had to give the right to the closest kinsman. And of course, understanding all that culture would help us understand that passage. Um, but we see that <clears throat> Boaz had to approach this other kinsman. They went to the other kinsman and he said, uh, he's in, in, in effect, he said, there's some property that's up for redemption and you're the closest kinsman. Would you like to have the property? And the kinsman said, yes, I'd like to have it. Boaz said, well, you need to know that once you take the property, you also have to take the wife Ruth. And the kinsman, I'm not sure what the reason was, but he said, nope, I don't want Ruth. Uh, no, no Ruth for me. Want the lamb, but not the wife. And so he said he wasn't going to take the wife. And it says uh, in uh, verse number six, he says, and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And we're like, that's strange. I mean, I understand the Bible says that's how they did it then, but why did he pull off his shoe? Why a shoe? Why didn't they do a handshake? or Why, why, why the shoe? Well, when you understand that culture, by pulling off his shoe, he was saying, I relinquish my right to walk on that land to you. Now you can walk on the land. It's your land. I'm not going to walk on it and claim it. It's yours. Therefore, we understand uh, how the pulling off of the shoe affected this. A legal, legal influence on, on the Scripture. Um, in Matthew 22, verse number 21, Pharisees came to Jesus. They were trying to trap him. They said to him, uh, they say unto him, Caesar's. Uh, then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. So what had happened here is the Pharisees came to Christ, and they said, Are we morally obligated to pay taxes to Caesar? And whenever we read that, we're like, 
Of course you're supposed to pay your taxes. Why would they feel that they weren't morally obligated to pay taxes? Well, when we understand what was going on in the culture at that time, we understand that Israel was being controlled by Rome. And Israel felt that they were being wrongfully controlled, therefore they owed no allegiance to Rome. Therefore, although Rome may demand that they pay taxes, God didn't demand that they pay taxes because this was a wrongful uh, control. And so they thought, well, we, we shouldn't have to do this because we're in no way morally obligated to Rome. But of course, God told them, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And of course, there's an entire message there about how we are to treat those who are in authority over us. Agricultural influence. Agricultural influence. In Psalm chapter number 1 and verse number 4, the Bible says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Now probably some of us have heard this uh, illustrated in sermons before, uh, but what we see here is that the ungodly are being described as a product called chaff. The Bible had just got done telling us that the godly are like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They, they can't be moved, but the, the ungodly are not so. What are they like? They're like chaff. What is chaff? Well, when we understand the agricultural agricultural culture, uh, there, that's a tongue twister. When we understand that, uh, we understand that they would bring the wheat in, they would beat the wheat, and the unusable part was very light, and the wind would blow it away. It was worthless. It was of no good. The wheat would fall down, and the chaff would blow away. Understanding that culture gives meaning to this verse. And I will say that there were many, many, many examples I could have used, but I did try to pick examples that you maybe were already somewhat familiar with, but there's a lot of other places we can apply this. Uh, architectural, architectural. I love this story about Peter. Anyway, it just, it just shows me so much how that the people of the Bible were humans just like you and I experienced the same things that we did. Uh, but in Acts chapter number 10 and verse number 9, it says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now catch this first phrase of verse number 10. And he became very hungry. I mean, you just don't get much more human than that, do you? Peter says, and he became very hungry. He went up on the housetop to pray. While he was praying, he became very hungry. You ever experienced that? You sit down to read your Bible, and you get about two verses in, and all of a sudden you just want a cup of coffee really bad, or, or you just want to go make yourself a sandwich right now. You see, Peter experienced the same thing as we did. It says he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he was on the roof waiting on lunch. He fell into a trance. The interesting thing to see here is that Peter was waiting for lunch on the roof. Now, if we don't understand the architecture of that day, this makes no sense at all. Why would you wait for lunch on the roof? One time I was at work, our boys were small. Melissa was in the house doing some cleaning. The boys were outside playing, and she heard something on the roof, and it was just all over the roof. And so she goes out to look, and I mean, they were little guys, little guys. We were good parents, believe me, that we were, but... She looks up on the roof and they are starting at one end of the roof and running as hard as they can to the other end to see who can get the closest to the edge without falling off. <laughs> then they turn around and run back the other way. Of course, she helped them understand in many ways that that wasn't a way to behave. But anyway, <laughs> whenever you think about us sitting on a roof, it makes no sense. But when we understand the architecture, we understand that their porch, what many times we built on the front of their house, they built on top of their house. That's where they went. They went up on the roof. That was their porch. It was a flat roof. Clothing. 
Understanding clothing helps us understand many things about the Word of God, and we uh, looked at this in the past uh, concerning our application to ourselves and how we're addressed. But one thing that we can look at right here in several passages throughout the Word of God, you will find the phrase to gird up your loins, gird up your loins, gird up your loins like a man, so forth and so on. In that day, everyone wore longer robe-like garments. That was the basic thing that they wore. And if you were to be working or running, it was limited your movement. And so they wore a sash or a belt around their waist. And whenever someone was going to be running or working or being active, they would get the hem of the garment and they would stuff it in that sash so that now their garment was more closer to knee length and they had a lot freer movement. They could run, they could work, they were ready to go. And so understanding that that's what gird up your loins means, we see that whenever God tells us to gird up our loins, he is telling us to be ready, to be prepared, uh, to not be tied down, to be ready to go at all times. And so understanding their clothing helps us understand that phrase. Uh, domestic, domestic. I'm, I'm two minutes away from what I said I was going to do. We're doing good tonight. Domestic. Uh, we see here in Luke chapter number 9 and verse number 59, and he said, this is Jesus speaking, he said to another, follow me. But he, the person Jesus spoke to, said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Now, whenever you read that, that seems like kind of an odd phrase. I mean, what's he doing out here talking to Jesus anyway if, they're, if his dad's dead and needs to be buried? This doesn't make sense. But whenever we understand the culture surrounding this, all of a sudden it does make sense. Because you see, in that day, burials were very, very significant. Funerals would sometimes last as much as 40 days. During the time of a memorial, uh, the, the family, many times the eldest son or, or the mother, if the father had plenty of money, uh, they would house, uh, feed, uh, entertain all the other family members, uh, friends and so forth that would come. And it would be uh, many times a couple of weeks or even uh, longer than a month that they would mourn the loss of this person. And it was a huge financial blow to the family unless they were financially able to handle it. And so it was an honor for the eldest son to be financially able to bury his father. This was an honor. And oftentimes, if a son was financially able to cover the expense and bury his father, he would inherit everything that his father had. So not only was it an honor, but it was a, a, a means of securing his future. Uh, and so whenever a person's father would become ill and they knew that he was nearing death, it could be he's going to pass away uh, in the next few weeks, could be that he's going to pass away in the next couple of years, the son would begin preparing for the burial so that when dad passed, he would be able to perform this of burying his father. And so whenever Jesus said to this person, he said, come follow me, he said, Lord, I'll be happy to do that. But there's some obligations I need to take care of first. I need to secure my future. I need to perform my duty. I need to make sure that I'm ready when dad passes that I can bury him. Once I get this done, I'll come follow you. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. What I need you to do is come follow me. The kingdom of heaven is far more important than any earthly obligation, and we understand that that's what Jesus was saying. To read this verse with a Western understanding, we're like, wow, Jesus was heartless. 
But that's not the understanding at all. The understanding was nothing on this earth is as important as the kingdom of God. Come, follow me. Geographical. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel uh, of David when he was running from Saul going to Engedi. And uh, you're, you, we don't understand the significance of that unless we understand the geography of Engedi. It was a very rough terrain. There was a lot of caves. There were waterfalls. It was an easy place for David to hide, get away from Saul, find a shelter for his men. Understanding the geography helps us understand why he went there. Uh, military. Uh, we read of Gideon's success with 300 men in Judges 7.20 and the three companies blew the trumpets, break their pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all and they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And of course we know that they, the, the enemy slew one another and Gideon had a great victory and nobody even had to pull a sword. Understanding how the military worked in that day, although we know that it was the hand of God, helps us understand why God used this method. By them breaking the vessel, it sounded like not 300, but many, many, many swords. They looked and they saw 300 lights and heard 300 trumpets indicating that there were 300 companies of men about to overtake them. And God was able to take just a small group of people and defeat because of God's wisdom and understanding how this would be seen. And then last of all, social, social uh, culture and how it affects Scripture. We read in the Word of God of the hatred of publicans. Zacchaeus uh, was a publican or tax collector. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector. And we see throughout the Gospels that they were hated, very much hated. And so... When we look at this, we ask, why were they so hated? But then when we understand that the publicans were Jews who worked for the Romans to exact money from the Jews, and then they would lie about how much the Romans wanted, and they would add to it so that they could get more. And many times they were very wealthy, living on money that they had stole from their fellow man. Now we understand why the publicans were hated. And so many things we can see here on how these things affect Scripture and affect our understanding of the Word of God. Now next week, we're going to look at how we translate the message of Scripture. Because if it's written in that culture, how does it apply to our culture? And there's some rules that we follow that helps us understand how to translate it into our culture. So that is that for tonight. And we're going to go ahead and move on into our prayer request. And so just wonder if anyone has any prayer requests that they would like to share this evening.